Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. You're listening to Mr. Richard Jusome, president of Walsh University, giving a talk entitled, The Heart of the Matter, Academic Freedom and Religious Liberty. Mr. Jusome's talk was part of the Fidelity and Freedom series at Franciscan University of Steubenville. Thank you very much. Thank you for the invitation. It is a pleasure to be here. When I come to these things, I always learn stuff. So last night over dinner, I was telling them that I did 17 years in education, that I did 17 years in the corporate world, and I'm back in education for 14 years, and was promptly informed that I had three years left in my presidency, start making plans to phase out. Wouldn't want to upset the pattern of my life. I first visited this wonderful institution 42 years ago as a 26-year-old dean of students who was coming to meet the dean of students at Steubenville College because we had talked about founding an association of deans of students of Catholic colleges. Uh, There were two things I really came to find out. I wanted to know why their basketball team was so absolutely great and why their reputation for student parties was so far beyond ours. (laughs) We actually formed the association. He went his way, I went mine, and so went the association. I came back probably 15, 20 years later and started attending the conferences here. The men's conferences, the defending the faith conferences, and so on. And I realized that, of course, that was the time that uh, Steubenville went from let's close tomorrow to let's be Franciscan and really do something serious here. About 15 years ago, when the TOR sisters here on campus were founded, uh, my wife's cousin was a member of that group, and I served on that board for a half a dozen years as well. Um, Last evening, when you heard two beautiful, scholarly, erudite, brilliant presentations. And I hear the one at 10 o'clock this morning will likewise be erudite and brilliant. But as I was listening to Dr. Hutter speak, and he talked about how Malone is watching, Malone, Notre Dame is watching Duke, and Duke is watching Princeton, it suggests that Walsh Franciscan and colleges our size are watching Notre Dame. We aren't. I'm watching Francisca. <laughs> when, I, when Friday afternoon at 4.45, Mass on campus has 300 students, the only way I could accomplish that is if I didn't call it Mass and called it happy hour. I would, I would have a chance. But in the 42 years that I've been visiting and aware of uh, Franciscan University, my goodness, have I come to admire what you've done here and and what you've created here. It's tremendous. And of course, uh, students visiting Catholic colleges, thinking of going on to college, uh, I meet lots of them. Uh, It's sort of dysfunctional, but I route all of the admission tours through my office. Uh, Keeps me awake. keeps me from focusing too long on anything. But I talked to a lot of prospective students, and almost every one of them either 
was at Franciscan visiting or was going to Franciscan visiting. If they already been there, I didn't spend much time with them. If they're going, I would try to talk them out of it, naturally. <clears throat> so how does somebody go from 17 years in education into the corporate world so that, as my wife pointed out, I would spend more time helping to raise these five children, not realizing that my first job was advertising director, and we did 26 trade shows around the world. Um, retiring from a corporate position, having been retired for 11 days and wondering what to do with my life, sitting on the board of Walsh University when the then 56-year-old president, sitting in a comfortable chair in his living room, dies of a massive heart attack on Tuesday. It's now Sunday afternoon, the board has gathered, and they're looking for someone who knows something about Walsh, understands finances, is Catholic, and is available, and everyone's staring at me. So that's a whole other story there, I'll tell you maybe some other day, but for purposes now, I agree to do that for a couple of months, uh, 14 years ago. And I'm still at it partly because it is such a rewarding experience to work with young people. Uh, the, the energy that they bring. Uh, that energy is not properly scheduled. The board wants to meet at 7 a.m. Two nights ago, I was asked to attend the student government meeting and that started at 10 p.m. So it, it makes for a longer day, but what an absolute opportunity. While I was in the corporate world, I actually started a non-accredited institution. The name of the company was Graphic Enterprises, and I started Graphic University. I made myself president, because I could, and <laughs> no search, and really spent a lot of time every week working with employees and focusing on leadership skills and focusing on the kinds of things that made one a leader such that others would willingly follow. Very few people are insulted if you call them leaders. Most people were first told they were leaders by their mothers. And so that's a term they're comfortable with. But when I ask people if they have ever taken the ultimate test of leadership, most of them never have. Because the ultimate test is rather simple. Look over your shoulder. If someone is willingly following you, you're a leader. And if there's nobody there, you're just out for a walk. So, <laughs> So over a period of time, you sort of have to develop your own, and I'm sure every one of you has in your own way, have your own theories as to how all this works. How does this happen? How does one lead an institution? So you could speak of Father Sean's leadership style, you could talk about corporate leadership styles, you could talk about the leadership style of Attila the Hun, and you could talk about the leadership style of Jesus. And they're all somewhat different. I use the ION theory 
of leadership. Are there any chemists here? Good, because you would be seriously uh, hurt by this theory. <laughs> the ion theory of leadership. Three parts to it. Mission, vision, and passion. Three words that end in I-O-N that makes it easy to remember. And it does sound erudite, right, when you first hear it. But I hear the ion theory of leadership. Mission, why are we here? Why are we doing this? Why don't we transform Franciscan or Walsh University into for-profit entities? It really would not be that hard to do. What is our mission? How is that mission going to be sustained as everything around us is changing? That's vision. You can have a sense of mission, you can have a vision, but very few will follow you, unless you increase salaries, very few will follow you unless there's passion. There's a sense that somehow we're making a difference some in the lives of others. And I have found those three simple words, and I have spent many, many years teaching leadership programs of all kinds to corporate boards, to nonprofit boards, and other groups. But I always know that in any organization, if most of the people know the mission, that's the starting point. Well, you can't do that in a corporate world. Well, you actually can. Now, if you typically walk into a large corporation, they have a mission statement. And you can always find it. It's, it's beautifully framed. It's hanging on the wall and sprinkled here and there throughout the building, but no one knows what it says. So every meeting I would go to at the corporate level, I would share the mission with them. To the point where they got tired of hearing the mission, except they all knew what it was. Well, how, do you, how about all those other three, four, five, six hundred other employees? I had a standing offer that if I run into you anywhere in the company or at any of the outreach offices or whatever, and I asked you what the mission of the company was, and you could say it, I'd give you $20. Isn't that kind of <laughs> self-serving at the very least? But it's critical. Mission, mission, mission. A Catholic institution. What is the mission? How many people on any Catholic campus can actually recite, if not verbatim, in substance, what the mission of the institution is? Very few. We spend a lot of time talking about survival. Very little time on vision. And we consider it work instead of passionately talking about it as the essence of our lives. And so I tell you that only because it's the context for the story that I'm going to share with you. And that really is all it is. And in fairness to the wonderful man here, Dr. Sanford, who invited me, don't blame him if this is not a brilliant, erudite, scholarly presentation. You really ought to be commiserating with the dear man who has to respond to this. 
But all I can really do is tell you the story of how Walsh University, with all of its promise and limitations, and ex corde ecclesiae ever came together. And it's not a complicated story, and it's one that I never knew I would be part of us. I always felt good that it was called ex corde ecclesiae, from the heart of the church. Because, of course, on campus, and I had seen throughout my life, statues of the sacred heart of Jesus. I have never seen a statue of the sacred mind of Jesus. And as long as we were going to talk about the heart of the church and the heart of our faith, I would be fine because I could be passionate about that. I had a vision as to how that might be and we could take our mission and grow, develop, and proliferate it within our students and our employees. So that's kind of where I start from and understand that I was a lay person in the corporate world when I first even heard of anything called ex corde ecclesiae. And when somebody told me what the word mandatum meant, actually knew, three years of Latin, when they told me what mandatum meant and that somehow this potentially posed a threat, particularly in American Catholic colleges and universities, I had no idea what they were talking about. How could that possibly be a threat if in fact the mission and the vision remain the same? And so I'd like to just tell you a story of Walsh University in my terms, obviously. And remember, I got there in 1963 as a student from Massachusetts. Why does anybody go to North Canton, Ohio from Massachusetts? Real simple. The religious order that staffed the high school I attended founded Walsh College, now Walsh University. When I asked my dad what the parent contribution would be for me going off to college, he laughed. I said, Dad, this is not a funny question. I mean, how are you going to be able to help me? Well, my dad was an immigrant who worked in the textile mills. There were six of us. And he said, what makes you think there's anything to share with you? So I had to find an institution that would give me a full scholarship. And because they had just started this small college in Ohio, uh, they were willing to seed that with students from their own high schools and institutions. I got on a bus, headed out to Ohio, really believing I was going to the Wild West. And there would be horses and cowboys and all sorts of things. And when they told me that my first work-study assignment on this farm that was to become Walsh College, they told me my job was to trap groundhogs. <laughs> now, I grew up just southeast of Boston. I had no clue what a groundhog, I thought it was a big pig, right? A groundhog. I mean, we had some serious rats in the Boston area. <clears throat> but here I'm going out to trap groundhogs. I just looked at him like, are you crazy? I don't even know what a groundhog is. That's another story. So let's get started. <laughs> because there's too many stories. And I, I think you're awake now. And I, I'm not real good at stand-up comedy. But 
It's easy to tell true stories. So my talk is entitled, The Heart of the Matter, because to me, the heart of the matter is what it's all about. This 25th anniversary, for me, is, is a wonderful opportunity. How wonderful that, that Father Sean thought to create these symposia to talk about ex corde, but everything that would be talked in a peripheral, in the central way sometimes, about it. Certainly caused me to reminisce and to re-energize my familiarity with the document. Forced me to look back at my own history and in my own passion for Catholic higher education <clears throat> and allows me the opportunity to tell a story that some of you might find interesting, some of you will forget as you walk out the door, and a few of you might steal a few parts of. Have at it. As I worked my way through the 14th year of my own presidency, I appreciate this call to share because it serves to remind me that the Catholic identity of our institutions is something that has to have more than token attention. I have another little theory I'm not going to spend time on, my double-eye theory. Identity and invitation. We are a Catholic institution. You are invited to participate. We are a Catholic institution. Walsh University was founded by a religious order called the Brothers of Christian Instruction. They themselves had been founded in France, in Brittany, in 1819. Walsh was founded in 1958 as Canton College uh, to discover a few months before opening day two things. One, they were not in Canton, <coughs> and two, that there was a Imagine not knowing that. And, and two, <laughs> we're in Canton College. Oh, no, not really. Well, fortunately, the Attorney General said, there's something called Canton Actuarial College, so you can't be Canton College. The bishop at the time in Youngstown had sold property in the area, gave the brothers money to build a place to live. So they trotted up to Youngstown and said, in view of, of the gratitude we have for you having helped us, we would love to name our college after you. And his name was Emmett Walsh. And he was the second bishop of Youngstown. So Canton College became Walsh College. Its, its predecessor was a tiny little college in southern Maine called Lamanet College. Lamanet was the name of one of the founding priests of the religious orders. His real name was Jean-Marie Robert de Lamenet. And they started thinking, now how is that going to play in Ohio? Jean-Marie Robert de Lamenet College. So Walsh College was probably a good choice. <clears throat> Bring yourself back in time. It is now November 17th, 1960, opening day. <clears throat> 67 young men showed up in the lobby, all men, one of the few Catholic colleges founded for men only. There were 67 of them, and they were all commuters. Why? They didn't like women, and they didn't like people living around them. No, wasn't that. They liked women just fine, 
but they had never taught women in their lives. They had never worked with women, and most of them had never been to school with women, and they thought all they could do is mess it up. If we just teach men, we'll be fine. They operated boarding schools all over the East Coast in northern New York, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And so, men only, commuters only. Strategic mistake. The most important program at the university was education. Should we try to run a school of education and not allow women students? You'd be bankrupt in about two weeks because 95% of educators are women. Quickly, we became co-educational, and quickly they realized if we were going to have any kind of serious community on the campus, we would have to have resident students. So what did they have? They had two buildings. Realistically, they had no plan, no land, no money, no buildings, and no employees. What a deal. We are going to start a college, one of them said, standing in his black robes up to his knees in alfalfa and looking across the field and saying, I can see un petit collège. How could he see a small college? It was an alfalfa field on a McDowell farm. No money, no plan, no buildings, no faculty, no employees. I can see un petit collège. We call that faith. Now some would call that stupidity. And in the corporate world, that's the, world, the word that we would probably use. But in terms of founding a Catholic institution, these were men with unbounded faith. And so they had a motto, biblical, New Testament, said Deus dat incrementum, but God gives the increase. They were standing on a farm. They thought, all we have to do is plant the seeds of Catholic higher education, and God will supply the harvest. You know, when I was in the corporate world, and I would think back to that story, because I got there the third year of Walsh's existence, makes no sense. You can't start a college in an alfalfa field with no money, no plan, no employees, no curriculum. You got nothing. And now it's 54 years later. 3,000 students, six campuses, global programs, two doctoral programs, eight master's programs, a balanced budget, and a vision for what more we can be. <clears throat> and so, as, as we heard last night, that whole paradigm about Notre Dame is watching Duke is watching Princeton, for institutions like Walsh University, Franciscan University, it has to be about faith. It has to be about making Jesus Christ known. And in our case, making Jesus Christ known everywhere with a specific mission of addressing the needs of working class families. 46% of our students, first individuals in their families ever to go to college. Not first generation, first person ever. 
30% of our students from families at or below the poverty level. Budgeting at Walsh, and I would suspect here as well, is rather simple. Take one-third, give it to the employees, salaries and benefits. Take one-third, give it to the students, call it scholarships, grants, and financial aid, and figure out how to run the institution with one-third of the revenue. In my corporate brain, a formula for failure, for bankruptcy. It is not sustainable. The wild card, faith, faith, faith. Mission, mission, mission. Vision, and more than all the others, passion. A bedrock, not to be denied belief that each of us in our own way is accomplishing a small part of God's work on earth. <clears throat> Excuse me. Froggy throat, but then I'm French, right? So French is supposed to have froggy throats. In 1990, when Pope John Paul II issued his constitution, Ex Corde Ecclesiae, defining his vision of Catholic higher education, Walsh College then was 30 years old enjoyed modest success, wondered how it would transition from having Brothers of Christian Instruction as president to not having a brother from the founding order as president and wondering how to do that. Because really, when you look at the history of Catholic higher education, most Catholic colleges had as their first ever presidents a priest, a brother, a sister. Catholic nuns founded more than 300 colleges in this country alone. Phase two, who became the next group of presidents? Former priests, former nuns, and former brothers. And it worked beautifully. They knew the charism of the order, they knew the mission, and although they had decided to change their lifestyles, they still had a personal commitment to this faith journey in the Catholic institution. And now we're in phase three, where almost 40% of Catholic colleges and universities have laypersons as presidents. <clears throat> 30 years ago, 25 years ago, when, when Walsh was 30 years old and Ex Corde came out, um, I was on the board of Walsh University as a layman and felt quite good about it. After all, in a 10-year period, we had five Nobel Peace Prize winners on campus. Our most famous alumna was Mother Teresa, who needed an honorary degree from Walsh, she said, to advance her career. So we gave her one. <clears throat> What a magnificent woman, the greatest woman, the greatest human being I've ever met. Four foot ten, hunched over. Uh, she was quite a fundraiser. She spoke in our auditorium, 15 minutes, talked about family and the importance of family life. We put a big plastic punch bowl on a table in the lobby. No one ever said a word about raising money, support, or anything else put a little paper sign on it said, for Mother Teresa's work. Big punch bowl, and people left. 
And when they left, they left behind $37,000. Amazing. Because passion, a woman on a mission. The goal of Walsh at that time was to try to establish financial stability and to do so in a faith-based environment where service to others would be paramount. So what happened? Ex Claudia had just been published, and of course the then president, being the good president he was, knew he had to somehow get the board involved. Very important phrase if you're a president. And so we were invited to a process. But things went in a, in a very moderate way. At first, the document was distributed. During the mid-90s, they had a simple strategy. Copies of the documents were made available on campus. Discussion groups were organized. Faculty members gathered in several events to dis discuss the key elements of the document. And yet, all I could hear as a lay participant was academic freedom, academic freedom, academic freedom. Members of the board discussed the document among themselves, with faculty, with professional staff. Students engaged mostly in the classroom. And by the year 2001, three presidents had been involved in reading, analyzing the document, sharing their thoughts with faculty, and trying to figure out how to define this apostolic constitution in terms of its influence on our colleges and universities. <clears throat> Students were mildly interested. Board members gave token approval. Faculty talked about the mandatum. And somehow, there was a sense that this was very worthwhile, but hopefully, nobody had an assessment director who would assess that, too, on the campus. The plan introduced by Vatican officials at that time called for the president and a majority of the faculty members and directors to be Catholic. It also asked that theologians who taught Catholic doctrine had to seek approval and sign a mandatum with their bishops. There was no legal mandate, and each institution could devise its own strategy. When I arrived on the scene as president in 2001, I came to the subject of Ex Cordia Ecclesiae with the perspective of a lay board member, not a faculty member or a college administrator or cleric. <clears throat> I confess the topic had not made my top 10 list of what to do when you become president. Wasn't anywhere near my bucket of things that needed to be done. I had to figure out how to devise a plan to sustain the finances of an institution that was struggling to balance a budget. And when I was done with that, perhaps I'd get to exporting. Had to grow enrollment, develop campus facilities, strengthen the brand and marketing image of the university. I found myself reminiscing about the foundational years of the institution when I came there as a student, and why I was there, precisely because it was Catholic. Um, I remember being required to take 18 credits in theology and philosophy. 
And I remember crosses and crucifixes and statues and Catholic art in every classroom, every event and meal beginning with a prayer, and teaching brothers and scholastics and sisters roaming the campus in black cassocks. But now it was 35 years later. No nuns, no cassocks, no prayer before classes, fewer required theology classes, no dedicated chapel, no vocations, and no branding tied to Catholic origins. What had happened over those 35 years? <clears throat> I met with several senior administrators who politely warned me that it would be a serious mistake and an obstacle to enrollment growth to overemphasize, their word was actually emphasize, our Catholic identity and traditions. Young people, I was told, who have been in Catholic education for 12 years mostly do not want to continue in a Catholic institution, though they admitted that perhaps that would not be a problem for Notre Dame or Georgetown or others. I thought about that for a while, reviewed my own 37-year history with Walsh, why I was willing to work here again after being in the corporate world, and I called them all back into the room and announced that I had prayed and thought carefully about their suggestion, but that I had a belief that the only way to build Walsh University was to return to our founding mission and to articulate a vision with passion as to what we could be, to emphasize our Catholic identity and proclaim that we were a beacon of Catholic higher education in Northeast Ohio. As they listened to me in silent frustration, I spoke of special scholarships for graduates of Catholic high schools, tuition discounts of 60% for an employee of any Catholic uh, institution, free use of facilities for any group that wanted to pray on campus, back to the crucifixes in the room, pilgrimages to Catholic shrines, a freestanding chapel, and more. They thought I had lost it. <clears throat> Rich, we got to balance the budget, we've got to grow the enrollment. I said, I know. I also knew that of six vice presidents on the executive staff, one was Catholic, one, but that somehow that would have to wait to see how some of these other things played out. And in the midst of all this, I met with the new bishop of Youngstown, who was ex officio, a voting member of my board. Bishop Tom Tobin's role was simple. We were not a diocesan college. And his first question to me was, uh, Rich, what about the mandatum? This is when my rudimentary knowledge of Ex Corde Ecclesiae paid off. At my inaugural mass, when I was installed as president, I had taken a public oath of fidelity. I had taken that oath because I believed in it, and I was aware that Pope John Paul's II Constitution <clears throat> spoke to what I believed and to what I thought Walsh needed to be. 
In part, I promised, I hereby promise that I shall always maintain personal communion with the Catholic Church in the words I speak and the way I act. I also promise to preserve the deposit of faith expressed by the Church and in the Creed, hand it on faithfully and help make it shine in the faith-based community at Walsh University. And I promise to carry out these responsibilities by which I am bound with great care and fidelity and to exercise my service within the parameters of the Catholic Church. When I said that, I meant it. That became my identity and my mission. Effectively, I had already fulfilled my mandatum. A few weeks later, I hosted a luncheon with Bishop Tobin in the Faculty of Theology. He had been on the commission that authored the document, and so he explained the processes and procedures that led to ex corde. In the final draft, he welcomed questions, invited them to call him, gave them a copy of the mandatum, and told them if they felt so inclined, they ought to sign it and send it to him. No pressure, no threats, no timelines, and within 10 days, he had them all. The process had worked. Years of study and discussion, board adoption, a president who had taken his own oath, a bishop who led a conversation and encouraged dialogue, a group of Catholic theologians who respected the process, felt valued by the bishop, and knew that the president's vision was to be an authentic Catholic university, faithful to the magisterium of the church. A few months later, I issued a statement that made the signing of the mandatum a condition of employment in the theology department. I wish I could regale you with stories of the epic battles over the coexistence of faith and reason and academic freedom and fidelity to the church. Alas, there were none. Was that because I was so persuasive? Of course not. It was a basic belief on the part of faculty that this too will pass. And we moved on. The question of academic freedom among faculty is always a topic of discussion on campus. You heard it brilliantly defined by two scholars yesterday. Faculty are comfortable expressing views that oppose Catholic teaching on our campus, and they do bring non-Catholic scholars to speak and discuss issues. Our Catholic Jewish Studies Institute welcomes thousands of lifelong learners to explore all sorts of issues in multicultural context. We ask only one thing, at the beginning, during, or at the end, but certainly before the conversation is over, that the Catholic position on that topic be identified and defined and become the representative part of the discussion to which the university spoke and supported. After all, I thought, 
Why would it be academic freedom to hire professors to teach beliefs that contradict our very Catholic identity? I deliberately began to interview every prospective faculty member. Never signed a contract for someone I had not met. And what did I talk to them about? Always the same thing. We are Catholic. You, invited, you are invited to work here. We are Catholic. You are invited to work here. We are Catholic, and you don't like that. Thank you. It's been a pleasure meeting you. Identify with no compromise and invite. And, you know, they go through the search process, and somewhere in the process, depending on my schedule, they plug me in. I know that no one else is going to say, hey, we need to talk about our Catholic identity and whether or not you would be comfortable in this environment. They know I'm going to do it. They warn them. Most of the people who get to me for an interview can now recite the mission of Walsh University. You know, just accidentally they memorized it. No, they were warned that, you know, if you're going to talk to him, you better read that thing because that's what you're going to be talking about. <clears throat> no, they're not free to launch a campaign or expostulate on everything they think is wrong with Catholic Church and Catholic teaching. Unless first they respect, present, and identify the Catholic position on the topic. Personally, I believe that our fidelity to the Catholic Church frees us to act using the teachings of the Church as a benchmark, so to speak, to begin the discussion. Very quickly, that academic discussion takes on a practical uh, position within the daily operations of the university. So if someone says to me, should we have a Students for Life club on campus? Don't need a committee, we don't meet twice, and we don't write the minutes. The answer is, of course. That's absolutely consistent with our mission. Is it okay if students display crosses on the campus, reflecting and symbolizing the aborted children? Of course. And naturally, there's the political science professor who calls and says, how cruel and inhuman this is. What we really need to do is put crosses in the quadrangle representing all of our military personnel who've been killed in wars. To which I say, have at it. They go, what do you mean? I go, well, we certainly are comfortable with having crosses representing aborted babies, but if you, in your wisdom, think we ought to do likewise for departed military personnel, go ahead and do it. Ongoing conversation for 10 years. <clears throat> Every year, the crosses are there representing the unborn. To this day, no one has put a single cross on the ground representing our military. Should we honor or invite a speaker who militates against Catholic teaching? 
Don't need a committee for that one. Of course, why would we do that? How is that going to advance the vision? How does that demonstrate our passion for our Catholic identity and mission? Why ever would we do that? Will there be masses daily? Will we have daily adoration? Will we say the rosary? We will have reconciliation daily. Is it okay to have Bible study groups? Can we celebrate Divine Mercy Sunday? Can we go on retreats and pilgrimages? You see how easy all these decisions become? You know the mission, you have a vision, and you are passionate. We don't need committees to figure that out. And what about service and development of leaders in service to others? Last year, our undergraduate students did 36,000 hours of volunteer service. That doesn't count the service learning classes. Well, why do we do service? Of course, that all comes out and is inspired by our faith, by our gospel. I have taken the position, and I, I believe it, that fidelity to our faith does not limit our freedom. You heard a wonderful explanation yesterday on the difference between freedom and freedom of choice. We always have the freedom, but within the context of our environment, we might freely choose to limit our choices. And once people understand that, and you share that, and you talk about that, they get it. It frees us to wander through the somewhat indefinable beliefs and practices of centuries of human thought and action while providing an anchor, a measuring stick, if you will, that enables us to evaluate against an inspired standard that unites us, directs us, protects us, and frees us. No subject need be off limits. No opinions need to be silenced. But ultimately, in the midst of conflicting thoughts, Catholic teaching, the core of our identity as a Catholic university, restores stability, brings comfort, and helps us to navigate the troubled waters of our culture. Seems to me that for someone to present the Catholic Church's teachings on a variety of core issues, one would probably have to read the Bible, the New Testament certainly, the identified church teachings as presented in various documents, and most importantly, live a life that embodies these teachings. Anything less admits of disbelief and confuses the listener. Can one truly speak about fatherhood without being a father? Can one truly speak of love without having loved? A few months ago, I was at a meeting of Catholic University presidents. The question of gay and lesbian rights was the discussion topic. I asked other presidents what they would do, for example, if a male residence director announced in August that he had married during the summer to Harry, his soulmate. The president of a very large Catholic university suggested to me, Rich, you're raising an issue that was settled many years ago. That battle was lost many years ago. Leave it alone. 
I was told. A New York Catholic college president agreed the battle was lost and told me that our efforts had to go to matters other than Catholic teaching on this matter. It was clear that at many Catholic colleges and universities, few wanted to make a stand against those opposing the church's teaching on marriage, contraception, gay issues, and more. Some weeks later, I was at a meeting of non-Catholic college presidents, president of a large state university, one that was state-funded, and he told a story about how he was meeting with the faculty of history and humanities, and that he told them, given the drop in enrollment in their area, they would have to be involved in recruiting prospective students for their departments if they wanted their departments to survive. The head of the history department stood up and said, the university does not have the authority to tell faculty members to get involved in recruiting students. The new president out of California, been on the West Coast, spent quite a bit of time in court with faculty members promptly said, if you believe that, you're fired. And somebody says, whispering, we're going to be in court, to which he said, have at it. That's what we need to do. Interesting. The Catholic president telling me, hey, Rich, back off a little bit. Easy with that Catholic stuff. You can't impose it. The public university president saying, you're fired. We are going to do what we have to do and what we're supposed to do. I found that when I made the signing of the mandatum, a condition of employment, it ceased to be a topic on campus. When students petitioned for permission to start an LGBT club last spring, I told them I would pray about it. A week later, I met with them, told them about my oath of fidelity, told them about the church's teachings on homosexuality and the, the remedies involved. I would told them I would continue to meet with them to assure them that their dignity and respect would be maintained. But no, I would not approve the club because promoting the homosexual agenda ran counter to our Catholic mission. The students hardly blinked, said they expected no, and were very pleased to hear that they could now participate in our diversity council and that they would regularly meet to talk about the issues that affected them. There was only one dissenting opinion. The faculty chemistry professor who wanted to be the moderator of the LGBT club. You know, when all is said and done, and usually a lot more is said than done, we need to live our faith. We need to proclaim it and not wait until the moment of decision. If we create an ambiance, that's part of how um, academic freedom was defined uh, last evening. Academic freedom is an ambiance, an environment wherein this process takes place. 
Then when decisions need to be made, they come out of mission rather than be set up as an opposition or contradiction to mission. I was present at Catholic University in Washington, D.C. on April 17th, 2008, when Pope Benedict XVI spoke to presidents of Catholic colleges and universities. <clears throat> After, quote, reaffirming the great value of academic freedom, unquote, he noted that any appeals to academic freedom to, quote, justify positions that contradict the faith and teaching of the church would obstruct or even betray the university's identity and mission, unquote. He said this in an address in which the press had predicted he would deliver a stern message to the leaders of Catholic colleges. The Washington Post said the Pope's message would be a rebuke. Benedict spoke of the extraordinary importance of Catholic education at every level. His teaching was thoughtful, respectful, challenging, and invitational. Yet his position was very clear. A Catholic university must articulate Catholic teaching and not use the university as a means of opposing Catholic thought. In many venues, the declaration by Pope John Paul II and the subsequent mandatum were received with a readiness to challenge, to oppose, to contradict, to change, to denigrate. It became a rallying point for those who questioned papal authority, for those who wanted to be liberated from Catholic control, and for those whose battle cry was academic freedom. The truth was that after its threatening, or at least controversial, pre-publication publicity, many institutions settled into a ritual of distribution, discussion, tactical disagreement, and even some denial. Others engaged in the discussion, determined the document and its accompanying mandatum were not threatening, used it to strengthen their identity as Catholic institutions, and moved on to live the mission. For me, the real threats to a Catholic institution are not ex corde ecclesiae, not the mandatum, but rather the threats that come from our culture, from a government that disowns the essence of a Catholic university and that threatens to force us to comply with laws that restrict our religious freedom in our individual conscience. That's the threat. So when I share with Catholic presidents and they tell me and conclude that things like the gay and lesbian agenda are here to stay. In New York State, there's nothing we can say or do that will not bring punishment. Don't worry about HHH mandates. It's a lost battle. Focus on academics. Jobs are far more important to students and parents than religious issues. The church must change because right now it cannot lead. I am quoting the presidents of Catholic universities. Disconcerting at best. 
Yet for those of us who welcome Excordia Ecclesiae as a blessing rather than a threat, the outcomes have been generative. It helped Walsh to move to acceptance by the Newman Society, uh, feeling humbled to be in the presence of Franciscan University, which lives it to the fullest. It helped us define ourselves. And remember those senior administrators who told me to go easy with that Catholic thing? We have doubled the enrollment, built 11 buildings, three outreach campuses in Ohio, one in Uganda, one in Italy, and some are still waiting for that shoe to drop because I keep talking about the fact that we're Catholic and it ultimately is going to destroy us. If under the banner of academic freedom we choose to oppose Catholic teaching, then certainly the apostolic constitution is a threat. But if your modus operandi is survey and study of dissenting opinions combined with the articulation of Catholic teaching and the defense of its parameters, the word threat becomes inappropriate. Honest discussion is quite possible within the context and environment of a Catholic university. Diversity of opinion is not anathema, but subversive attacks on Catholic doctrine are. Walsh University has flourished over the past decade. Our motto, sed deus dot incrementum, reminds us that truly God gives the increase. In our case, it's a matter of integrity. If I violate my oath of fidelity, I lack integrity. If faculty compromise the mandatum, they lack integrity. If Walsh University markets itself as a deliberately Catholic university of distinction, but opposes Catholic doctrine, the university lacks integrity. As I look back over the 25 years of this constitution, from the heart of the church, it helps me to understand that that seminal document has challenged us to be better and has committed us to be who we are freely, and in our case, we hope and pray that the vision and the passion that is present on our campus truly makes of us a Catholic university of distinction. Thank you. Let me begin especially by thanking President Jusome for his very inspiring as well as entertaining talk. It was a wonderful way to wake up this morning. Um, your work is inspiring, and I think it's inspiring particularly because so much we see in the narrative, the story of an individual, but also of a community that is collectively pursuing the good. And it's more particularly pursuing the good that is laid out by Ex Cordia Ecclesiae, pursuing the good as called by the church. For many reasons, um, many comments on Ex Cordia Ecclesiae focus on the more challenging legal requ requirements for Catholic universities, namely to maintain a faculty that is majority Catholic and to acquire the mandatum of its theology faculty. These are, in fact, challenging and critical requirements and those that are often resisted by many Catholic universities. 
However, it is worth remaining aware of the obvious requirements that are placed in a political context in which the responsibility for maintaining the Catholic identity of Catholic universities is broadly shared. With your indulgence, I quote from Article 4 of Ex Corde. The responsibility for maintaining and strengthening the Catholic identity of the university rests primarily with the university itself. While this responsibility is entrusted principally to the university authorities, including when the positions exist, the chancellor and or board of trustees or equivalent bodies. It is shared in varying degrees by all members of the community, university community and therefore calls for the recruitment of adequate university personnel, especially teachers and administrators who are both willing and able to promote that identity. The identity of a Catholic university is essentially linked to the quality of the teachers and to respect for Catholic doctrine. It is responsibility of the competent authority to watch over these two fundamental needs in accordance with the indicated, uh, as indicated in canon law. What better example than what we've heard this morning? But we sometimes overlook the obvious. In this case, the obvious is that ex corde is an apostolic constitution, both in its ecclesial sense and in the modern sense of the word. In the ecclesial sense, the word constitution takes its original Latin meaning of constitutio, or the highest order of law that could be issued by the Roman emperor, which suggests not just its legally binding nature, but for Catholics, its order of importance within magisterial teaching. But ex corde ecclesiae can also be seen as a constitution in the modern sense of the word, of setting forth a certain set of rules and principles by which a political system, organization, or community is governed. In this sense, we shouldn't overlook the fact that while conditions are set for a majority of Catholic faculty and theologians, the special emphasis is also given to the governing authority of the board and trustees and the, chan and the chancellor, generally in American parlance, the president of the university. In short, while we're all called to write responsibility, like any capable administrator, St. John Paul II understood that passion and commitment for the university's path must start with the responsible authority, the university president. Returning from the general, uh, from the general rules of ex corde to the particulars of what we have just heard from President Jusome, I would suggest that there are elements of his narratives that are assured, assuredly idiosyncratic to him and to the struggles of Walsh University. However, it is also my contention that there is also a central theme of his narrative that you can find in a common thread in the stories of a number of Catholic universities that have undergone similar transformations. I would see similarities in what we heard last year on our campus from President John Garvey of Catholic University of America. Closer to home, it is seen in the story of Father Michael Scanlon, TOR, president of Franciscan University of Steubenville, as he told his story in Let the Fire Fall. The central theme I see in all of these narratives is a form of leadership identified by the historian James McGregor Burns and others as transformative leadership. In his 1978 Pulitzer Prize winning book entitled Leadership, Burns divided human leadership into two basic forms. The first, which he called transactional leadership, is the more common 
in a sense, more comprehensible form of leadership. By his definition, transactional leaders approach followers with an eye toward exchanging one thing for another. Vote for me, you will receive greater security. Vote for me, you will receive more benefits. Uh, one could even say, read my mission statement and I'll give you 20 bucks. Classic form of transactional. But all leaders also, he suggested, require more. So he conversely lays out what he calls transforming leadership. And he says, and I quote, transforming leadership while more complex is more potent. The transforming leader recognizes and exploits an existing needs or demands of a potential follower. But beyond that, the transforming leader looks for potential motives in the follower, seeks to satisfy higher needs and engages the full person of the follower. The result of transforming leadership is a relation of mutual stimulation and elevation that converts followers into leaders and converts leaders into moral agents. More succinctly, leadership transforms the followers to pursue higher moral values. If one uses James McGregor's Burns dichotomy, it is extremely difficult in many respects to portray President Jusson's leadership style as transactional. There is little mention of making the university more marketable and growing enrollments, growing endowments, but he has actually accomplished all of those things. Instead, there is a clear commitment to a higher calling. In his talk to Radio Maria from earlier this fall, President Jusome explains that he began his presidency by dedicating it to our beloved mother. Similarly, ex quarter, Ecclesiae states, and I quote, it is the honor and responsibility of a Catholic university to consecrate itself without reserve to the cause of truth, unquote. At the same time, President Jusome announced what he's just shared with us. He presented to some of his followers um, some of his plans for the university, a commitment to returning the university to its original mission, special scholarships for graduates of Catholic schools, 60% discounts for diocese employee, free use of facilities for Catholic groups, crucifix in every room. Keep in mind he's delivering this in a situation where was it five were non-Catholics? One can see why one questioned um, the financial viability, maybe the sanity of the president at that point in time. What a challenging charge to the university. In short, he is pledging fulfillment of ex corde ecclesiae when the goal seemed not to be attainable and even potentially for uh, foolish pursuit. This is exactly the same sentiment that was expressed by Father Mike. He offered no guarantees of worldly success, but instead argued for this transition here based on the higher moral value of making the proposed return to orthodoxy. When assuming the presidency of Franciscan University, Father Mike described it this way, and I quote, my program for Steubenville was novel to say the least. Spiritual matters rarely take priority over academic and financial concerns in a college. Although colleges like to portray themselves as communities of scholars devoted to academic excellence, the reality is usually very different. Most schools are do dominated by curriculum decisions and financial pressures. I was proposing to give top priority to spiritual renewal at a time when money was tight and most students and parents were looking for academic quality above all else." Unquote. 
In short, he, like President Jusome, gave precedence to the moral call. And as you heard him extemporize at one point in this talk, he just basically said, we were going to do what was right. We was going to do what was needed. Um, that's not selling the faculty transactionally and saying, and you'll get a better salary of all of this. I hope you did give him some, as a faculty member, we'll argue for that continually. But the goal, the purpose, the first calling is that the university is called to what it's supposed to be by ex cordia ecclesiae. Possibly it is a bit of sacrilege to say this at Franciscan, but in a sense, Father Mike had a lesser challenge in that the secularized route Franciscan was then pursuing was demonstrably leading to worldly fa failure. Whereas in the case of President Jusome, although he faced enrollment challenges and fiscal difficulties, uh, there was neither a financial crisis or duress that was leading to the university's immediate closure. In a sense, it's easier to make the argument, let's try this crazy path of doing what's good if anything else is likely going to lead to our closure. He was dealing with a considerable degree of success and trying to make it more successful. That's why it seems so logical that the faculty come back to him and say, but President, you're going to lead us to collapse. You know, you're going to rescue defeat from the jaws of victory. Um, obviously, what has happened at, at uh, Walsh University is just an op opposite. Uh, I will say in another sense, uh, when President Jusson launched his reforms, Father Mike had already proven the financial sustainability of the orthodox Catholic higher education model, so perhaps I can keep my job, Father. Uh, Father Mike had it tougher in this sense. Uh, but let me return now to my central argument which is that in all of these cases, CUA, Walsh University, Franciscan, transformational leadership was attempted and defying the odds of what many would expect, in each case it succeeded. There is little doubt but that the demands of transformational leadership are much higher. Those leaders who promise their followers uh, that moral development, uh, those leaders, uh, sorry, there's little doubt that the demands of transformational leadership are greater. One must persuade the follower not only that moral development will ensue, but that the moral goal is worthy of spurning the more obvious appeal of material benefits in favor of, which flies directly in the face, as he pointed out a couple of times, of the material culture in which our universities are increasingly embedded. Moreover, I would suggest that the personal responsibilities of transformational leadership are much higher. Those leaders who are promising their followers tangible benefits typically are allowed even grave moral lapses as long as they deliver on the material promises they've made. Conversely, those who call others to moral transformation must of a necessity expect far greater moral scrutiny and ultimately public reckoning even for minor offenses. Nonetheless, my conclusion is a positive one. Last night, Dr. Hahn rightly suggested that it is nearly impossible for Catholic universities to recover their lost intellectual traditions, aptly comparing this and enlightening this endeavor to trying to repair a spider's webs with one's bare hands. Well, I would never quibble with Dr. Hahn on any matter of theology, and agree as to the difficulty of the task, I am nonetheless now certain it is attainable. Why? First, from a deductive perspective, I know that this will happen. 
In Matthew 16, 18, we hear our Lord tell our first pope, and I quote, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, unquote. Thus that we know that the church built around Peter will prevail, and as we heard last night, the bishops know that they need faithful Catholic universities to prosper. Using Dr. Hutter's uh, wonderful story of the Nigerian bishop was but one po poignant example. The church needs faithful universities to thrive. This is true not only though for the Bishop of Lagos, uh, Nigeria, and the bishops of Steubenville and Youngstown, but also true for the Archbishop of Milwaukee, and even for the Bishop of Fort Wayne, South Bend. Thus, logically, if we know that the church will prevail and that its success requires faithful universities, one can deductively conclude more faithful universities are yet to come. Secondly, from an inductive perspective, we have seen the transformation of Franciscan University of Steubenville, of CUA, Walsh, and now 34 others. But simply put, what we can conclude, what has been done, can be done. We all owe much, though, to those rare transformational leaders who have paved this arduous path. Thus, before asking my couple of questions, I wish to return to where I started by saying thank you, President Jusson. In fine academic fashion, uh, much like Jeopardy, we always uh, propose any criticism in the form of a question. Uh, I have relatively little to quibble with, uh, with President Jusson's presentation, which really is just an inspiring story of faith and success. But I do have a question about the identity of the university and the challenges that are carried out uh, there, because you were founded by an order, the Brothers of Christian Instruction. Uh, you've had Dominicans, Franciscans, and so many other orders on campus. How does one create a court, and you're named for a diocesan bishop, so how does one create a particular charism for the university in that environment? And I think it's an important question because I think a number of Catholic universities have gone so far that it's hard to reclaim their Catholic identity and need to find a new mix, a new identifier for themselves. And the second question I would ask is to elaborate, if you would, uh, on how do you see your own leadership style between transformative and transformational? I know in his studies, James McGregor Burns essentially argues that essentially leaders eventually need some of both. But from your talks, both that I've heard on air and here, it seems a strong emphasis for the transformational to calling people to is what is right. How do you run that mix at your university? So thank you for coming and thanks for the time. <clears throat> when my wife Teresa told my five college-educated children that I was going to be part of this symposium, none of them wanted a copy of my presentation. <laughs> Several, however, asked if they could get a copy of the response. So I, I will need that from you. <laughs> We've had Franciscans, only one, Dominicans, 
and now Benedictines on campus in various roles, and our bishop is a Jesuit. So that sort of covers the, the gamut, right? But it's an important question, and it's really the question that keeps me awake at night. It's not the quantifiable issues that are the real challenge. How many acres, how many buildings, how many students, how many outreach campuses, how many dollars. After 17 years in the corporate world, honestly, in some ways, this is child's play. Once you figure out key performance indicators, know where revenue really is generated, and you can read a balance sheet, it's doable. Far more difficult, and probably why I hang around after 14 years, is that I don't know, within the context you just described, a very small religious order, Brothers of Christian Instruction, of whom there are now 18 in the United States. Median age, 79. About 1,000 members in 26 countries around the world. How is that legacy to be passed on? What are we going to do? When I asked the Marianists if they had any interest in taking on the sponsorship of Walsh University many years ago, Father Heft said, Rich, we've got the same problems you do. Grow your own leaders. And that really knocked me back, because I thought, the Marianists, the Benedictines, the Dominicans, the Franciscans, my goodness, we actually had a Franciscan president at one time, not from the TOR group. <laughs> That's a whole other story. <laughs> but uh, how is the legacy going to be continued? If I'm not hiring for mission, if the faculty is giving me token assent because tactically I increase compensation, pay a larger part of the benefits, contribute more to retirement, and still allow tenure, it is going to fail. Truly, who is going to write this paper? Who is going to write that book on how you continue the legacy of a Catholic institution and the founding charism of the founding order when they're not here anymore? Lay people who may or may not know, in my case, I got there 50 years ago. Of course, I, I, I know the charism and I know the founding mission. Will my successor? Will the next three or four theology professors understand that legacy and have that same level of commitment? I envy you to have Franciscan friars walking this campus. And that's why I keep trying to find Franciscans, Benedictines, Jesuits, I, not Jesuits, I haven't really haven't looked for Jesuits. <coughs> I, I gotta be in, in full disclosure here. <laughs> let's, let's be serious. Um, <laughs> But the very, point, the very question you ask is, is the difficult one. In fact, I was hoping you'd answer it so I could use your document. But how are we going to do this? The, the number of Catholic college universities diminishes. As I told you, they were led by brothers and priests and sisters. Then they were led by former brothers and priests and former sisters. And now lay people who don't have the benefit of that immersion in the founding charism of the order. 
That, my friend, is the challenge. Now, five of the VPs are Catholic, and most of the initiatives that we work towards, and that's why before when I said I looked to Franciscan, unabashedly, I do. I'm stealing every good idea I can find on this campus and elsewhere, because it is a tremendous challenge. Fortunately, we have brilliant theologians. You have many on this campus, and many of your theologians, like Dr. Hahn, have been on our campus as well, who, who seem to have that same bedrock belief as to what we're all about. But my friend, I don't have a quick answer to that one. And your other notice, your other notion about uh, you know, the, the transformational versus the transactional. One of the toughest things for a transformational leader, humbly, I hope I'm one, one of the toughest things for a transformational leader to be aware of is that he or she is being transformed. It's not about, I will transform you, and then you, and then you, and then we'll have a core group of transformational leaders, and we win. I have been transformed now for 14 years. I've had to search my own heart and soul in faith in a way I have never had to. I do not have the luxury of being a fraud. I will be discovered. And when I talk about the integrity of, of an oath of fidelity and dedicating my presidency to Our Lady and the hokey little metaphors and analogies about her mantle of protection over our university, I mean it. I'm not smart enough to do it without that, without that divine intercession. I have no idea. I started building a chapel had no money. That's not real bright. I spoke to a priest about it. Some of you may know, Father Manning on our campus. I said, what do you think? Build it. I said, got no money, build it. I said, you know, Father Manning, that's really nice for you to say as you, you drive your car back home and have a nice dinner, and I'm sitting there thinking, how am I gonna do this? He said, just build it, will you? And I built it, and it got paid for because I had a marvelous plan, strategic initiatives, did a solid SWOT analysis, a little bit of appreciative inquiry, and hit a grand slam. Are you kidding? I prayed. Fortunately, so did my wife. We aren't in the same category when it comes to that. I'm here. Uh, if I have a theologian who's really a problem, I know that's gonna sound a bit stupid, but she prays them off the campus. <laughs> two for two. <laughs> that ain't bad. And so, to, to your point, if, if, if I could just remember that I too am being transformed, along with my colleagues, wonderful people, nobody does this alone, a community of really good people, and really good young people in whom I have tremendous belief, I could stay focused. The transactional part, for me, that comes out of my business orientation. Come on, there are practical ways to make things happen, to raise money and do other sorts of things. Um, I wish I had Mother Teresa's style, 37,000, 15 minutes, not bad. Don't have that style. So I have to be more transactional, but always, and fortunately, a woman named Teresa who kicks me and reminds me 
when I think I'm successful, when I think I really did something brilliant, I get a quiet kick that says, you know, Blessed Mother help you do that. I go, can I take a little credit? No. <laughs> so that's a, a rambling answer to an honest question, but it's really a very important one. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.